the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, I'm joining you from Berlin in Germany, a little too close for comfort to the Lower Saxony village where a 24-year-old female cyclist was chased by a pack of three wolves last Thursday and credited the electric motor on her bike with saving her, despite wolf czar Jürgen Kassier later advising her that she should have dismounted and stood still. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we will discover how 24 teams tried to evade the jaws of Belgium's self-styled wolf pack on opening weekend and also whether the apex predator known as Remco Evenepoel is returning to Europe this week with the first kill of the 2023 season. Helping me to do all of that, and he's already shaking his head in exasperation, is a man who, according to a little chat GPT research when I was thinking about intros last week, calls Bristol in the UK his adopted home and has competed in numerous races over the years. I look forward to asking him about all of that in a minute. But he's no deep fake and there is nothing artificial about this ace commentator's intelligence. You can keep chat GPT because he's one of GCN's Voices of Cycling Indeed, you'll have heard him this week in weekend. It's Roberto Hatch. I have been to Bristol once in my life. There we go. On a bike ride, believe it or not. Didn't stay very long. We got very close, very close. These races you've competed in, let's talk about those, shall we? Um, c- could somebody politely inform me what they are? Egg and spoon races? Uh- <laughs> That's, uh, with my yeah. shaky hand, I don't think I would have got about five metres in that, even at primary school. I had a wonderful half an hour delving into the hinterland of your, well, lesser known biography on ChatGPT. Um, hours of fun to be had there. Rob, <laughs> Rob is squinting now. Um, Rob, um, the, <laughs> the second, second guest this week really requires no introduction. Um, also here... Again, this week is a man whose credentials as a diehard Watford football supporter were called into question by reporting the Watford Observer paper he possibly used to work for. An article in said publication revealed that Mark Lancaster, age 53, has converted his garden shed into a Watford-themed fans pub that he's christened the Hornet's Nest. The backyard boozer features fruit machines, a dartboard and a museum-worthy collection of Watford memorabilia. Lancaster was tight-lipped about the total cost of the endeavour, said the Watford Observer. But the paper did reveal that it ran to more than £10,000. Lionel Burney, I believe, that at one stage you had two sheds in your garden, but neither was a Watford-themed pub. What have you got to say for yourself? No, I know, you're right. Then neither of them are a Watford-themed pub. I wonder whether he could sort of double up and make it a a Watford Jumbo Visma-themed uh, pub for watching the football and watching the, the cycling. The cycling hornets or the wasps, probably the wasps, aren't they? Jumbo Visma had a very good weekend. The bumblebees, the hornets, the killer bees. The, the killer bees, de- Rob, there we are. The first football team I ever played for was called the Borsal Hornets. Borstal? Borstal Hornets? <laughs> the Borsal Hornets. The Borsal That didn't hornets. come off chat GPT, did it? <laughs> No, no. Um, Lionel, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Daniel. Well, I'm just staggered by uh, the, the depth of your research for these intros. Now you're having to resort to my local newspaper and chat GPT. I mean, this this uh, phenomenon is running its course, it seems. 
It really is running <laughs> its course. Um, Lionel, did you ever work for the Watford Observer? I did, yeah. I started my career there, actually, in uh, the mid, well, the early 90s, actually. Yeah, 31 years ago this year, that would have fond been. Fond memories? 30 years ago. Very fond memories. Yeah, really good uh, sort of grounding. Obviously, local newspapers have not survived the uh, internet revolution terribly well. Uh, the Watford Observer still going, still very good in, on its coverage of Watford Football Club for um, supporters of the club. But no, a really good grounding in kind of the, the basics of journalism, I guess, uh, when that was the progression on then to sort of national publications. Lots of people in the national media would have followed a similar path. And I feel very fortunate to have been able to do that before it all kind of evaporated a bit. Well, chaps, let's find out how many of the basics of journalism we've remembered um, in this week's set us up for a fall here haven't i i've set us up for a fall (laughs) this week's news roundup let's crack on let's start with the race that well that started the longest time ago way back at the beginning of last week that was the tour of rwanda i think we covered a couple of the stages last week it was won overall by henok mulubran 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 of barniani who took the gc there in rwanda having also won the decisive final stage in Kigali, on the famous wall of Kigali. Another stage race, the UAE Tour, was just starting when we podded last week. I can tell you that the race featured two sprint stage wins for Tim Merlier, team time trial win for Merlier's Sudal Quickstep team, sprints as well for Juan Sebastian Molano and Dylan Gernewegen. And a surprise hold-up by Einer Rubio of Movistar on Jebel Jais. Then we saw yesterday the more predictable outcome of an Adam Yates solo win on Jebel Hafit. More predictable because he traditionally finishes second there behind Tadej Pogacar and Pog was not in attendance. On the GC, despite getting dropped by Yates and losing 10 seconds on Jabal Hafit, Remco Avenepoel, well, he did return to Europe with his first kill of the season. He cruised to victory by 59 seconds over Luke Plapp of Ineos Grenadiers and Adam Yates, well, the aforementioned Yates of UAE, who edged out Peot Bilbao for the podium places, for the last podium place by three seconds. Chaps, we might revisit this later in the episode in part four. 38 pro wins now for Remco. Um, obviously, well, it's a healthy start to the season for him. But, but, did he lose face a little bit by getting dropped by Yates on that final stage? I'm a little surprised, actually. Again, I was covering the classics this weekend, so I didn't have my usual eagle eye over every single meter of every single stage especially the last couple of stages but I would have thought I don't know if you tend to agree with me but I would have thought that the two climbs in that race would have been tailor-made for Remco Evenepoel not too steep not full of hairpins no sort of chances for teams to really ambush everybody else I can understand the Rubio one because he's not going to do all the chasing himself is he but on the last stage not winning that did surprise me a little bit I don't know I mean I think Adam Yates has got that climb fairly well dialed in and Remco didn't need to do anything did he he had just had to do the professional job and you know not get caught up in in doing anything that that might have risked um, anything going wrong on those final few kilometers I thought it was just a, a thorough professional quite mature performance I mean it's not the world's biggest race is it but uh, you know given the situation he was in 
he did exactly what was needed just to, to make sure he got it over the line. I do wonder, though, in future years, whether Adam Yates is going to have some kind of holiday company based on, uh, on Jebel Hafid, with, uh, you know, he can do guided tours up that mountain, couldn't he? This is, this is where I dropped Pog. This is where I got dropped by Pog. This is where I won in 2023. Um, yeah, I could see people flocking. Maybe an enormous marble Adam Yates statue on top of... Jabel Hafeet, why not? Why not? We Daniel, just, on other mountains. just yes. to go back to Rwanda very briefly before we sort of move on, but uh, I thought you were going to mention Chris Froome and his uh, shades of uh, the 2018 Giro d'Italia. Froome racing, of course, for Israel, Premier Tech there. He was up the road for around about 75 kilometres and uh, his day out ended with a puncture and a crash. But uh, some glimmers of uh, Chris Froome and some form kind of you know, sharing the same orbit there. Well, chaps, a week after Pog's exhibition at the Ruta del Sol, there was another of the GC Galacticos entering the fray, and another one fired an even more emphatic opening salvo this weekend. Uh, Tour de France winner Jonas Vingegaard completely mauling the opposition in the snow-affected Gran Camino stage race in Galicia. In northwest Spain, one stage was cancelled halfway through, another was shorn of a couple of major climbs due to snow, but it was all the same to Vingegaard. He won all three stages, i.e. two summit finishes, and an 18-kilometer time trial, the latter by a remarkable margin of 35 seconds over Rowan Dennis. Chaps, I also heard Jonas Vingegaard's interview after the third of those stage wins, after he won the overall there. And a more matter-of-fact interview I have rarely heard. It sounded as though, I don't know, he was comment- he was commenting on having whipped up his signature dish, chili con carne, for the 85th time and having to explain <laughs> to, uh, to, to, to his dinner party invitees that, you know, the kidney beans went in after the mints. It was... Um, Yes, business very much as usual, it sounded like for Jonas Vingard. But it really was a mauling. The opposition wasn't of the standard that we saw at the UAE or even at the Ruta del Sol, indeed. But Jumbo Visma, and this is going to be a theme, it was certainly a theme of the last few days. They well, positioned him perfectly at the bottom of those two climbs. And he did the rest, as I said, very, very emphatically. And then to beat Rowan Dennis by 35 seconds in the time trial... Um, well, our mouths are watering before Paris-Nice in that battle with Pog, aren't they? They are, yeah. I wonder, wouldn't uh, Jonas Vingegaard's signature dish be something fish-related? It'd be some kind of fish stew with stuff he's, yes. he's snuck into his musette on the way home from the fish gutting factory. I'm not sure he still works mm. there, to be fair. Um, I did like, though, the... the the stage two uphill finish going across the crazy paving style cobbles. And it made me think that this time of year, the cycling season is basically just a, a tour of the different surfaces you find on British suburban driveways. We've had cobblestones, crazy paving. We've got gravel coming up at the weekend in Italy. And yeah, this clash between Pogacar and Vingegaard at Paris-Nice really makes uh, the race to the sun quite a prospect, doesn't it? Not well, how long is it since we've seen a kind of real battle royale in as early as Paris-Nice between sort of, well, the, the past two Tour de France champions? It does, though, mean no Pogacar for Strada Bianca. He won't be defending his title there at the weekend, though. Is that carbon footprint reasons? I don't know. Is he? Did he suddenly get cold feet about having to take a private jet from uh, Siena to somewhere near Paris? 
I've been watching Netflix um, season-long sort of chronicle of the PGA Golf Tour. What's it called? Full Swing. Better than the tennis one break point, but a lot of private jets. An awful lot of private jets, I must say. Also, at the weekend, chaps, were two French one-day races in the southeast of France. Between them, a very small carbon footprint. Not a stage race, but it sort of feels like it's all they should be, these two races. First, the Fawn Ardèche Classic, so a return to action and form for Julien Alaphilippe, who out-sprinted David Gaudu to take victory. In the second, the Fawn uh, Drôme Classic, where we saw a tour de force by Anthony Perez of Cofidis, who defied some pretty awful conditions to win after 38 after a 38-kilometer solo move, the wind was indeed so strong in the drome yesterday, the large proportion of the peloton thought they were all going to quit before the last lap of the finishing circuit with Perez down the road. But the mooted industrial action fell apart due to, well, general cycling shambolicism, apparently. Um, no one could agree on when they were all going to pull out, so they finished Can't the race. Can't believe that for one minute. It never happens. Which worked out beautifully for Anthony Perez. Final races of the roundup. We'll well, we'll cover the women's omloop het newsblad in here and say that Lotta Kopecky of Team SD Works won solo, no sola really, ahead of her teammate Lorena Vibus. I want to pronounce that in Spanish, uh, in a Spanish accent, Lorena Vibus, but it's not Spanish. And um, well, I think surprised a few people with her climbing. Um, she's made some noises about wanting to become more versatile this year, of course. Pretty much widely acknowledged as the supreme sprinter or sprinters in the women's peloton, but she certainly climbed well on Saturday to finish second. Weebus underlined her excellent current form by winning Omloop van Het Hageland from a 20 rider group on Sunday. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to our title sponsors, Super Sapiens. Find out more about the system of continuous glucose monitoring at supersapiens.com. Now, in the recent edition of Rouleur magazine, it may not even be out yet, but it's certainly uh, imminent if it's not already out and about. Uh, Theo Gagan-Hart, the 2020 Giro d'Italia champion, Ineos Grenadiers rider, of course, talks a little bit about using the Super Sapiens system, uh, not just to monitor his blood glucose, uh, but he's also invested in the company. He said, it's something I really believe in. I find it incredibly interesting data. We're bombarded with data, but this is different, he says. You can link it to your own intuition and behaviours and tendencies and nutritional practices that you already follow consciously or subconsciously. It's quite fascinating how many things affect your glucose. For me, Teo says, it's a recovery tool and one that doesn't so much change my food as how and when I eat it. One of the things that uh, people have found using Super Sapiens is that the order of food can change the glucose responses. If you want to avoid a big spike after dinner, have a nice green leafy salad before it. That seems to work for most people. Uh, find out more about Super Sapiens at supersapiens.com. I think it was a great, great day uh, for the team. We took the control and we rode super well. Uh, I can't thank uh, the guys enough to 
yeah, to make this happen. Yeah, it worked out really well because I knew Christoph was behind me. For him, it was also a good situation if I would be in front alone and he could save his legs, legs a little bit. Well, chaps, we heard there from the winner of Omloop Het Newsblad at the weekend, Dylan van Baler of Jumbo Visma. We'll hear more, we'll talk more about how he put together, or how his team in particular put together that, well, it was a masterpiece, it was a collective masterpiece um, in Flanders on Saturday. But before we talk about that, well, let's just establish the facts first of all. Let's just establish exactly what happened in the race on Saturday, courtesy of someone who was following it very closely. Because Rob Hatch, I think you were commentating. I was. I was working for the international broadcasters on Saturday, working for Flanders Classics, as I enjoy doing every spring. And it's always good news, isn't it, when the Flemish spring arrives after a long winter wait, time for the classics. And there's nothing like watching bike racing in Belgium. It was the seventh. 78th on Lopit Newsblad at the weekend, kicking off opening weekend, starting in Ghent. Not any more an omelope because it doesn't go back to Ghent. There's no Langemunter. 20 kilometres to go. We finish in Ninova with the Mood and Bosberg finishing off. But the sort of centrepiece of the race is really the Haarhoek and Leber combination. They take it on three times over the 207 kilometres of the race. And it was on that Haarhoek and Leber combination that really the race had its winning move, didn't it? We had a six-man breakaway go earlier on. Jumbo Visma took it up really early. At one stage, there were 14 men away. And out of those 14 men, six of the seven riders of the Jumbo Visma team were there. They were absolutely unplayable, the Dutch team. They got a couple of men up into different groups. They were then brought back. And as we were coming onto the Haarhoek, that section of cobbles for the final time, it was Dylan van Baala who saw an opportunity and went away on his first race for his brand new team after transferring from uh, Ineos. He went and took it to the end, really. He had three riders for company. Then had just one rider for company, Mathieu Lebert, who'd been in the early breakaway. And he took it on all on his own, really, from the Mur. Then the Bosberg. No one really looked like catching him, did they? And even behind, in the sprint for second and third, after Arnold de Lierd. Survived a crash, won that sprint for second for Lotto Destin. It would be another Jumbo Visma rider, Christophe Laporte, who'd end up on the podium in third. Um, you wait 42 years, gents, for a rider to win on opening weekend, opening day, without having turned a pedal in anger. And then Jumbo Visma come along and bring us two at once. Wout van Aert last year, Dylan van Baala this year. Well, interesting you mentioned that, Rob, that Jumbo Visma, we haven't seen a lot of the riders who were certainly very prominent on Saturday um, prior to Omloop at the weekend. We hadn't seen much of them. Um, Christophe Laporte, after the race, he said to L'Equipe that they've been effectively for the last three weeks where well, they've been on their couch in Tenerife and they've been at altitude in Tenerife and watching races and the excitement had been mounting. They couldn't wait to get going. I think they'd been, they, they hadn't just been sort of reclining on their respective couches watching bike racing for three weeks. I think they've been training pretty hard. But this is a bit of a characteristic of Jumbo Visma, and it's something that they seem to have mastered the well, the ability to train extremely well. We've seen it before, big stage races with Primoz Roglic as well, and to be competitive straight away. Um, but it, it feels still like a risk. It obviously wasn't a risk because, you know, they've got the physiological data which tells them um, how strong all of their riders are. And not only were they strong, they were stronger than every other team quite clearly, weren't they? 
Well, they were, and uh, we called them the Wasps earlier. And the way they raced over the weekend, they it was a bit like they'd been stored in a jam jar all winter and uh, were getting angrier and angrier. And then suddenly, Saturday morning, Richard Pluger takes the lid off the jam jar and lets them, <laughs> lets them go, and they just swarmed the opposition. As you say, Rob, you know, they, they laid down that statement of intent all pretty much where they needed to be early on in the race. And... Uh, really from the kind of the midpoint of the race it was uh, how to win a race like Omloop by numbers wasn't it when that second move went they had two riders in it Jan Tratnik and Nathan Van Hooydonk you know that was a really powerful looking move wasn't it because Fred Wright was in there for Bahrain Victorious Marco Haller for Bora Connor Swift for Ineos and Kellen O'Brien for Jayco and it looked like one of those kind of traditional advanced moves. But Jumbo Visma had everything tied up from that point on, really. Tratnik was the revelation for me. I mean, yes, he has done cobbled races before, but that was his first omelette head newsblad. And he's much more, in recent years, been seen as kind of one of those... Uh, those engines on the longer climbs but clearly you know strong work very well together with Van Hooydonk and Van Bala it was notable uh, 55 kilometers to go as they were approaching the Holloweg cobbles and the pace was really on and the gap to the front group had come down to uh, just under a minute Van Bala was actually the last rider round the right hand bend just about and so he had to move all the way up from the very back of the peloton to the front before he could even get into uh, the position to to make his um, final move but really it was a case of them laying down the early marker getting the middle phase of the race right and then Van Bala was all in with his move and no one else really uh, tried to go up against them Napalm, last year, at the end of last year, we had Richard Plugger, the team principal of Jumbo Visma on the podcast, and he talked about what, what has been referred to, and I think he referred to it as well, as a total cycling, this term, this um, denominator that people have come up with for their style of racing. This is, of course, this is a bit of a bastardization of the term total football that's familiar from Dutch football. And that really referred to a kind of an ability to interchange position. Now, uh, interchange positions around the field and, to, you know, one player kind of covers for another player and they, they sort of attack collectively but also defend collectively. Now, it strikes me that, you know, that is appropriate in some respects for what Jumbo Visma are doing, but I think of it more as a sort of shock and awe, kind of heavy metal style cycling. And the really distinctive feature of it is their willingness, their ability to take the race on very early. I mean, you sort of alluded to there, we've seen this kind of configuration before with Quick Step many times where they would sort of send someone vaguely dangerous or a sort of second string rider down the road relatively early in the races. But I don't remember Quick Step ever taking races on with more than 100 or even 150 kilometers to go. I mean, on Saturday, 100 kilometers from the finish was a 14-man group and Yumba had six riders in that group. And um, and they seem to be fearless, but this is not a sort of a reckless aggression at all costs. This is obviously based on what they know their individual riders can do. And, you know, you mentioned Tratnik there. I was speaking to his agent actually this morning and I asked him, you know, were the classics discussed much in negotiations? Because Tratnik, as you say, is not a guy with massive pedigree in the in the classics. He sort of discovered his ability in the classics last year, in fact. Tratnik's agent, Mattia Gallia, told me that 
Well, it, it was certainly discussed, and they see him as a, a do-it-all sort of Swiss army knife who can be good on every train. But their team is kind of full of riders in that vein. Yeah, it's, it's pretty devastating. Just going back to the original point there about whether this is something new, whether it's something that Quickstep did it. I mean, I want to give Jumbo Visma the credit because they have been exceptional at doing this thing, their thing, as you say, the total cycling in the last 18 months, two years especially. But I'm not sure it has uh, the genesis entirely within their team because you, you can think back to the way that Philippe Gilbert won the Ronde de Vlaanderen a few years ago and there were a couple of races before that, I think, that Edrie Press, I remember one Tyenberg where there was a team time trial by Quickstep going into yeah, it with 70, 80 Ks to go. Was it that far? Or I, I and think it was Philippe more Gilbert sort of... attacked with more than 100 kilometres to go okay, in the Ronde yeah. de Vlaanderen. But again, I, th- I think it maybe was a sort of thing that was developing in cycling, it is clear, I'm not taking any credit away from Jumbo Visma here, because I think it is clear that they've taken it to a completely different level. Um, I rather maybe naughtily suggested when we're off air that they were maybe playing at being quick step. It's more than that, isn't it? They have developed it. They have moved it on, as you've seen in other sports. I just think this is part of the increasing professionalization of cycling and people looking to find new ways of entertaining, of winning, and, and they're doing it very, very well. Um, in terms of yeah, Jan Tratnik, I was really impressed with him by the by the weekend. He's obviously been talked about quite a bit within cycling circles because on Friday, as I was doing final little bit of prep for for the Omlop at Newsplan, I was reading the Belgian press and the um, the very the veteran former sports director and now commentator José de Cauer was talking up Tratnik. He said he's a phenomenal runner. He is a phenomenal rider, he said. He said he can do everything. And he was his dark horse for victory. So somebody in, in the circle somewhere had been talking about what he could do. And, and I think we saw a really good evidence of, plenty of evidence of what he could do, not just on Saturday, but as we'll talk about as well on the Sunday. I do think, though, that uh, it's one of these things that we're talking about it in, um, you know, glowing terms because it worked and they won the race. I mean, I can remember, you know, when Team Sky first said they were going to rip up the way the classics were raced and they tried to boss the kind of the middle section of the Tour of Flanders one year, you know, 100, 120 kilometres from the finish and they were all there. And, you know, snarkily, I probably wrote or said that they were, they took charge of the least important part of the race, you know, and they, they, they mistimed their effort. The, the, the thing about the way Jumbo Visma raced at the weekend was that they had numbers everywhere. They clearly had a plan. They clearly had a backup plan. Christophe Laporte at Omloop was third uh, in the sprint behind Arnaud de Lee. And, um, you know, they, they always had a fast rider uh, that they could then fall back on if things didn't work out. So it wasn't like they had to put their big ace card on the table and know that that was all or nothing. As it turned out, uh, it was all or nothing for Van Bala. And I think the, the strength of the team behind gives the confidence to go all in because had they been dragged back, they still would have had the card to play in the finish. And so um, it's a it's a reward for risk-taking, but calculated risk-taking. They didn't do anything that, that uh, looked um, reckless. They were just, they were strong. They had a plan and they were undoubtedly helped by the fact that Sudal Quickstep, Kasper Askreen not on the start line in the end, uh, apparently ill, that, that weakened their... Um, line up and meant that their kind of 
options were a little bit more two-dimensional. You know, Jumbo Visma, as you say, Daniel, total cycling. They had every base covered more strongly and more in depth than pretty much all of their rivals. Can we talk a little bit as well about the decisive move itself? Um, Dylan Van Baal, of course, Paris-Roubaix winner last year. Last year, I talked about... I gave him this nickname, the Diamond Thief, and um, in reference to kind of the way he attacks. And 38 kilometres to go on Saturday, it was almost like he'd sort of donned his black turtleneck balaclava and velvet gloves and just sort of eased open the safe. And uh, there's a reference really to the, the manner of his attacks. Um, okay, he, well, he was out of the saddle for a couple of seconds um, when he sort of moved to the side of the road. But often it doesn't look as though he's going that fast. Um, he obviously is. And this is obviously the perspective of someone who's watching on their couch, not who's trying to stay in his wheel. But there is something sort of stealthy about the way he does make his moves. Um, I've also referred to this, well, a colleague of yours, Robert GCN, Riccardo Magrini, the Italian commentator, he refers to a fagianata, um, which is kind of a, a pheasant-style attack. It's a stealth attack. Um, Magrini explained it once, said it's a stealth attack, two or three turns of the pedal, like the pitter-patter of a pheasant, which suddenly runs, a, runs away without you even noticing it. And, well, that is... The diamond thief, that is Fambala, and it strikes me that he's the perfect guy to have in this role, in that sort of danger zone of 60 to 30 kilometers to go, particularly after climbs on sort of false flats, when the race is a little bit disorganized, and maybe two groups are sort of um, coming back together or sizing each other up, that's when he generally makes his move. And that was the case at the weekend, wasn't it? We've seen him try it in the Ronde van Vlaanderen, even back when he was at uh, what was Cannondale, what is now uh, EF Education Easy Post. There's that little bit of road, isn't it? The top of the Alde Quarmont and Ronde van Vlaanderen, Strat and uh, the Autant up there. And it's it seems the most insignificant bit of road in the whole of the Flemish Classics races, but it's a dual carriageway. It sort of goes down and comes up again bit of false flat up and down. He's been away there before and it's almost worked for him. It has worked, as you say, in Paris-Roubaix. It worked at the weekend wonderfully well. And if you remember a couple of years ago, it worked in Duarte Vlaanderen brilliantly as he took the victory in, in Wadegem. So he has uh, certainly history doing it and he's you know, the, the perfect motor, the perfect engine to do that, the, the way that his physiology is there. And, you know, it's no use having that physiology, though, if you can't sniff out the move. And he just knows when to go, when to hit them. And I think he said in the interview afterwards, didn't he, that it was instinct. It was pure instinct. And he knew just before the hard hook there, that was time to go. And, and a sort of a nice traditionalist um, view on things. It was nice to see the hard hook have that sort of protagonism again and be the place where the, the race was won because it's such an important stretch of road in in that race and in a lot of different races as well. And we all talk about the mood and Bosberg finish, but, you know, the race was over by then, wasn't it? Rob, you talked about colleagues and learned pundits talking up, uh, Jan Tratnik and others before the race. Certainly there was a lot of attention, there was a lot of interest in Arnaud Dilly, the Lotto Destiny prodigy, 20-year-old prodigy. Of course, well, we talked about him in depth a couple of weeks ago and one of the most prolific Riders in cycling last year in his near pro season. And, well, he's coming to this classic season with people already, well, um, among them, yours truly, suggesting that he could win a classic this year. It's my big tip for Milan San Remo. And, well, he's very much in the thick of the action, wasn't he? One sprint behind Van Bala. 
And this, having crashed or had some kind of snag, some kind of issue before the Molenberg with, uh, I think it was about 48 kilometers to go, really key point in the race, the Molenberg, where it's a left turn into a very, very narrow road. And if you're not in good position there, you're really out of the race. Somehow, Delhi contrived to move up. And well, by the time we got to the Kapilmoor, he was hot on Van Bala's heels, wasn't he? And he looked one of the strongest riders on the Kapilmoor. Did Lotto, though, play their cards in the most judicious, well, as judiciously as they could have? Because um, Florian Vermeersch, Delis' teammate, was away, well, with Jonathan Milan and Matisse de Boer and Van Bala in the group that effectively yielded the victor, the victory for Van Bala. And Vermeersch worked, didn't he? Um, he was pulling in that group. Um, any any comments, any footnotes, any thoughts on Lotto Destiny? Um, before I let uh, Lionel Bernius in many more an opening weekend than, than I have cast his sort of judgment on, on how they did, I will say that I think they had their best opening weekend for some time, and the stats will say that, because Arnold Lee wasn't even born the last time that Lotto Destiny won a race on opening weekend. Um, the last time they won the Omlop at Newsblad, he was born two weeks afterwards. That was Peter von Pettigem back uh, in uh, 2002. The last time they won Kurna Brussel Kurna was Andre Schmil in 2000. So I thought that they had a, a pretty good opening weekend, but maybe Lionel, they could have ridden a little better, do you think? Well, a tricky one. I mean, Delhi had that uh, crash, didn't he, on the right-hand corner, uh, with about 50 kilometres to go, then a little kerfuffle with his chain, then the bike swap, and then, as you say, the, the, the fairly miraculous chase to get back on and then get into a very good position on the Molenberg. Like you say, Daniel, yeah, Vermeersch was in that move, but with Van Bala, you know, why not cooperate with that? I mean, it, you know, Jonathan Milan as well, a you know, str strong rider. Uh, LeBaire had been in the early break, so, I mean, as it turned out, it stayed longer than than anyone else with Van Bala, uh, just uh, slipped back on the moor, um, perhaps changing his gears, slipped his gears and, and, and had a little, uh, little wobble on the on the gutter there but uh de lee i mean he rode extremely strongly you know he didn't give up even though van bala was was ahead and he was you know really working hard in the chase it looked very good on the moor it looked to me like he was in a pretty big gear i mean he was trying to you know flatten the moor out rather than uh than, than he was in the big ring you know, wasn't spin, he spin up it Every, yeah I'm, he I'm hearing a lot of Belgian commentators, journalists, well, they're scrambling to come up with uh, an analogy, a comparison, someone that Dilly looks like, is going to ride like, is going to maybe emulate. It struck me at the weekend, just watching him on the moor, there were sort of shades, echoes of Johan Museu. Well, I mean, he's more of a cannonball, isn't he? I mean, he's going to, he's going to, when he gets going, he's going to absolutely steamroller people, um, you know, power, but no little finesse as well. I mean, I was really impressed with him considering he wasn't originally down for Omloop. He was going to ride Kerner, Brussels Kerner, and we'll probably talk about it uh, a little bit later, but probably cost him on Sunday, the effort that he made on Saturday, but he put absolutely everything in to trying to get himself back into a, a winning position when uh, his teammates, uh, it was Brent Van Moer, I think was last man with him, wasn't it? And, um, you know, once, once De Lee was kind of left doing that work on his own in that little move, you know, well, I mean, why not? I mean, he was there with uh, Tim Vellens, 
uh, Matty Mohoric. I mean, strong, strong seasoned riders. And uh, yeah, holding his own looked, uh, well, a, a future classics winner for sure. Maybe even in three weeks time, Daniel. Let's hope so, for the benefit of my bank account. Um, Rob, um, were there a few raised eyebrows? I mentioned how he came back, you know, how he managed to get himself back into contention after that mishap before the Molenberg. Um, a few raised eyebrows. Did you, we, do you have any access to, a, I don't know, a secret feed, which player cam maybe, that showed us exactly how he did get back? I mean, certainly, there was nothing amiss about the way he rode, certainly from the Kapelmoor. Um, it was more, the, I suppose, the five or ten kilometres around about the Molenberg, where he did seem to make a, a remarkable recovery. I wish we had access to player cam, dearie me. We see the same images that you see on the telly at home, I'm afraid. Nothing secret. Actually, this weekend I was working from uh, from the home studio. I'm off to the Flemish Classics in a, in a few weeks' time. Um, so I I didn't even see too many raised eyebrows. I said that the little village where I live, not too many people are watching the Omelop at Newsblatt, I don't think. Um, not ne- not necessarily the, the Enrique Mass um, race to follow of the year. Yes, he obviously got back somehow. Uh, I wish I could tell you how he got back. There's the obvious speculation that's going to say that he might have been helped back. But, I mean, there are bike riders who I spend quite a bit of time with working who would say, well, that's also part of the game. If you crash, you should be allowed to be helped back on. Uh, it's a topic that we will discuss forever and ever and ever and one that will never, ever go away. Um, and until we have evidence turned as he did or he didn't, it is and remains something that Lionel won't like. Pure speculation. Just a final word of praise, chaps, for Matisse Lebel, the 21-year-old Arkea Samsic rider who was in what, a long breakaway, 150-kilometer breakaway, and then was the last guy... Um, that Van Barla actually got rid of finally and rode away solo to the victory. Uh, Le Bel, a landscape gardener, qualified landscape gardener, um, I discovered at the weekend from Saint-Briuc. Uh, another 21-year-old, well, we talked a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, about Kevin Vauclin. He's from Normandy. Le Bel is from Saint-Briuc in Brittany, but uh, obviously quite a, a healthy production line of talent which is currently dropping off 21 year olds at Arkea Samsic the diamond thief and the lawnmower I mean you know amazing amazing <laughs> and the flymer yeah the flymer I was impressed with uh, I was impressed with Van Bala's temperament though I mean it must have been quite irritating having Lebert on his wheel you know knowing that uh, well how yes. the extent to which he knew um, he must have known that Lebert had been in that early break and had been up the road all of that time probably also knew he wasn't going to be any threat over the, the Muir or the Bosberg um, nevertheless uh, a slightly irritating um, presence but as one of the wasps you know wasps are an irritating presence aren't they they ruin many a picnic through the summer so uh, no no cause to complain uh, should just also I'd mention black, i'd back a flymo against i'd back a flymo against the wasp <laughs> indeed yeah uh, just a word about Ineos Grenadiers because they uh, very unfortunately lost Ben Turner who fractured his elbow in a crash and uh, remains to be seen how that will impact on the rest of his classic campaign a real shame especially after I was uh, talking him up for a big campaign this spring uh, that left them with Tom Pidcock who uh, you know you wouldn't necessarily fancy in a big uh, sprint of you know 20 30 what was it 25 riders or so but uh, a good fifth place for him behind alexander christoff who was fourth of uno x um it was that finish was interesting though wasn't it because the the little delay group was basically 
caught 250 metres from the line by the bigger group and yet De Lee still managed to hold on for second place in the sprint. I mean, that's what made it all the more impressive, I think, for De Lee. And uh, yeah, determination, staying power. And as I say, let him go at the top of the Poggio. And uh, as, long as, uh, as long as he can stay on the tarmac, he's got to have a chance, I would have thought, for Milan San Remo. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, of course. The classics are coming thick and fast, and Science in Sport have got a Strava Challenge coming up in March. There'll be more details on this in a week or so, but... Note down the dates, 18th to the 31st of March. The challenge will be to ride 100 kilometres and everyone who completes the challenge will get a discount on Science in Sports energy products. And there'll be a very special classics related prize for one lucky participant. What you need to do now is join the Science in Sport Global Cycle Club on Strava. You can also join the Cycling Podcast Club on Strava. I mean, all my activity is secret, but uh, I think you can probably see Daniel's running. Maybe Why I don't is know. that? Why is that? I don't Why know, really. I, let, I don't know. I, don't, I suppose I was hmm. trying to do secret training at some point. I didn't want uh, my I didn't want my rivals to know. <laughs> um, <laughs> just I'm, with, before, I'm with you as well, Lionel. I've got my yeah. secret thing, so people think I'm in Bristol instead of where I am. Ex- exactly. <laughs> yours isn't secret. I've seen yours. Anyway, go on. Sorry, well, sorry, Lionel. Uh, and scientists sport, of course, the full range of products for before during and after your ride or your run go to scienceinsport.com just before we crack on just a word for our new uh, improved 1101 cappuccino email bulletin we're now on substack so it's even easier to sign up uh, this week i wrote a piece about my first omloop covering omloop het volk as it was back then in 1999 i've got something in the works about strada bianca coming this week and uh, if you sign up on substack Look for the cycling podcast and the 1101 cappuccino will pop into your inbox. Yeah, it's nice. Of course, after uh, I broke my neck at the the beginning of August, Uh, it's only my second race after seven months of no racing. Um, And it's true, it's a long time, like since 2020 in Paris, I think, since I won. So uh, I was a few times close last year. But it's really nice to win a one-day race like, uh, like this. Not one of us was, was more important than the other, I would say. We, uh, we knew we had both our chance in the final. Uh, Nathan went a few times. He went one time really hard. Mohoric had to dig really deep, I think, to, to close the gap. I tried also a few times. Uh, Nathan went again before the last corner. They reacted and when I went, I think I got a small gap immediately. And I knew, yeah, I had to go full because if I go full, the, the others also have to go full and then uh, then Nathan can still win the sprint if they come back, and if they not come back, I win the race, and that's what uh, what happened. So uh, I think we played uh, we played it good in the final. Well, chaps, after one Jumbo Visma masterclass on Saturday, we saw another one on Sunday, didn't we? Different winner, um, same outcome in the sense that it was dominated by Jumbo Visma. Jumbo Visma first and second, in fact, on Sunday at Kurna, Brussels Kurna. And, well, we heard there from Teish Benoit, the winner of the donkey, the cuddly donkey at the end of Kurna, Brussels Kurna. And, as I said, another tactical masterclass and another 
race that Jumbo Visma took by the scruff of the neck very early on, with, particularly with Eduardo Affini, the Italian um, Shire horse, who I think is getting better every season with Jumbo Visma. And also, I don't know if you chaps noticed, but a 19-year-old Norwegian, um, whose name Teish Benut didn't seem to know, but I can tell you his name was Per Strand Hagenus. Um, he won Paris Tour Espoir last year, ahead of none other than Matisse Le Beurre, um, who was very prominent on the previous day in Omloop Het Newsblad. Lionel, Teish Benut is not a prolific winner. Um, he had a terrible crash last year um, after the Tour de France. He was training in the Italian Alps and broke his neck. Um, hasn't really raced since then. And well, he's not fast, particularly. He's very, very strong. He's a rider we struggle to pigeonhole. And sometimes it's felt in Teish Benut's career that he hasn't known exactly what he is. I mean, I mentioned Arnaud Delis in the last part. Lotto Destiny's 20-year-old prodigy. It doesn't seem that long ago that Teish Benut was the same team's floundering prodigy. He was fifth at age 21 when, at a time when we didn't see many 21-year-olds thriving in this kind of race in 2015. A lot of time has passed since then. It has, yeah. As you say, uh, not just his first races of the season, but his first race, well, Omloop was his first race since the Classic of San Sebastian in late July, just after the Tour de France, where he was third. Benut, well, we all know, you know, he doesn't really have a sprint. So what he did on Sunday was basically make the sprint almost a kilometre long, wasn't it? I mean, it was tactically, it was a very, very well executed move by Jumbo Visma. He had his teammate in there, Nathan Van Hooydonk, who, of course, had had a big day out on the Saturday as well. Well, they all had, hadn't they, in support of Van Bala. Um, but I think on Sunday, you do also have to ask questions of the other riders who were in that group because uh, they really played into... Jumbo Visma's hands, didn't they? I mean, yes, they were outnumbered two to one, but they didn't really, you know, try the old, you know, one, two, perhaps fearing uh, that they would um, be the ones to lose out. And I think also the wind played a part, crosswind for, you know, a good two, three kilometres before that left-hand turn and then tailwind. And Banute would have known that. Tailwind would suit a rider perhaps uh, feeling a little bit more tired than the rest, perhaps not having the natural zip in his legs, but also um, just uh, the, the fatigue uh, would have built up. And, I mean, he played it absolutely perfectly. He, he went. It was another kind of a, a ghosty move, wasn't it? It wasn't as if he, you know, hit them like a rocket. He went up the right-hand side and just kept going. And uh, Tim Vellens, you know, reacted, probably needed a bit of help, probably needed somebody to jump from behind to, ha to have a chance of them making it a sort of leapfrog game of reeling in Banute. But then they would have been vulnerable to Van Hoydonk. So I could see the dilemma that they had. But again, it's this lesson of taking the race on as a team, putting numbers in every situation and then when it breaks down into the winning move having two riders instead of one it does make it a lot easier Sunday's race is very different from from what we saw on on Saturday isn't it the final climb comes with what 55 kilometers to go the the Klosberg um, and then you've got this sort of flat running. Although you say it was windy, you know, they crossed the River Skeld a few times, went across the Leia, all that sort of area around Kortrijk. Well, we know it's flat as a pancake around there, and the riders will know every nook and cranny, every left and right, because 
either they live around there or they stay in there in a hotel for a month every year when they're doing the classics. Um, they knew the route around there. Tish spun up more than many because he's from Ghent, just up the road. Uh, he never actually won a race in Flanders in Belgium before. Um, so it was nice to see him win on home roads. Fantastisch. I think I said as he crossed the line. And it really was, wasn't it? Um, because I thought that they'd sort of messed it up going into that final left turn. I thought they'd missed their chance and it looked like either Von der Horn or Mohoric would win in a sprint, didn't it? Because we've seen that from those two before. Uh, for Hoydonk, had had his own opportunities. Um, and Bernot, as you say, Lionel, it was a ghost move as well because he sort of went on the right-hand side. When everybody was looking on the left, it was really, really clever racing. Another one of those, though, I suppose, chaps, that had they not won, would be sitting here talking about a fiasco. Absolutely. A, a Jumbo Visma fiasco. Yeah. And that could quite easily have happened. Very easily. But I think it, it's all about the way they raced at the, the end of that crucial middle third of the race. As you say, Rob, all of the hard stuff is in that middle third. And then there's uh, often we see a group ahead. If the gap's only a minute or so, all of the um, advantage lies with the sprinters, but the chase behind... It did once. It did, it did once. once. It seems to be changing. Maybe we'll talk about why yeah. in, a, in a second. It, it, yeah. I mean, it should have done, even given the numbers, I think. I think they just put a little bit too little into it until, um, you know, uh, until too late, basically. But looking at the way... Jumbo Visma rode in that crucial middle third with sort of 80, 75 kilometres to go. The climb with the Mont Saint Laurent, uh, a lot harder climb than, you know, I mean, the, the, the kind of the feature point used to be the Alde Quadamont, didn't it? Which is a, it's a slow burner of a climb, really. It's not really somewhere that you can really sort of generate a move um it tends to split up and then all come back together again because of the roads that come after it whereas the Mont Saint Laurent it did split up quite a lot and crucially you know Benut and Van Hooydonk had been up the road they went together and then at one point Van Hooydonk was sort of drifting back and wasn't there but then he made that big effort to get back across and I think that was the crucial moment because that was the the time that Mohoric, Van der Horn and Velens knew that they were were outnumbered but committed and had to go for it especially once the gap went up and there was that little bit of hesitation behind uh, presumably waiting to time the chase on the flatter roads um you know the lotto destiny sudal quickstep for fabio jacobson uh Kofidis, of course for brian cocker you know they there was enough in there to bring the gap down some of those boys were a little bit slow to commit very much so Kofidis and trek segafredo uh, probably the guilty parties there because they had the they had the numbers. I mean, you could say, and, and in their defence, you could say, well, Brian Cooker, Jasper Sturm are very fast riders, but are they going to do the work so that they then get beaten by Fabio Jakobsen or uh, somebody like that? But then again, you know, <laughs> you can bring that argument back to the very beginning and say, well, why are you going to bike race in the first place then if they're faster? Uh, You've got to be in it to win it, haven't you? And I was a little... I think, uh, disappointed that nobody else came to the front to, to help them chase. Lionel, well, we, we just mentioned that sort of phase of the race in the finale when the gap was about a minute and it stayed at around 
a minute and it's been a bit of a theme of racing the last year or so that quite a lot of breaks quite a number of breaks have made it to the finish seemingly defying the odds or defying old dogmas that we still hold to be true about for example a one minute gap being within range of a chasing peloton in 10 kilometers and you know as i said we've seen various examples over the last few years of that or last year in particular of that not being the case now one reason for that or a lot of people have pointed the finger at motorbikes and traffic in the race tv motorbikes in particular now i don't know how much of a factor this was at the weekend but it did seem um well a, a sort of timely coincidence that there's an aerodynamic specialist who has done some work for jumbo visma i know burt block and who posted a, a really intriguing thread on twitter at the weekend on saturday i think and he talked about this he talked about the advantage of riding behind a motorcycle he said it gives a huge benefit and this has always been known but his team at the um, university of leuven have done studies on this and he talks about time gains at 10 meters 30 meters and 50 meters and they are respectively 5.4 seconds per kilometer at 10 meters so the motorbike 10 meters ahead of the rider 2.7 seconds per kilometer at 30 meters and even at 50 meters away 1.6 seconds per kilometer this is all at 54 kilometers an hour pretty significant i mean he he has done a number of studies that have shed light on a lot lots of different aerodynamic phenomena for example the fact that two riders riding side by side um, two abreast well that actually makes them less aerodynamic than if they're riding than if a rider is on his own effectively in single file and so on and so forth and you see the result of this or we've seen the result of this in some of the things that Jumbo Visma have been doing for example in team time trials in team time trials you'll notice that if Jumbo Visma are riding when a rider has finished his turn on the front, he'll swing way over to the side of the road, well away from his teammates before getting back on um, onto the pace line, in effect. But what he says about motorbikes is pretty unequivocal, and it does suggest that there are serious advantages to be had. The one caveat is that it doesn't always favour the breakaway rather than the peloton, does it? Sometimes... The, the motorbike, and we've heard riders talk about this, the motorbikes have been abetting a chase rather than a break. Depends who you're talking to, depends who ends up winning or ends up favoured, which country they're riding in, who complains, there's lots of things. I think, interesting, you gave the stats there about the, what was it, 10 metres, 25 and 50 metres. You could probably forget, Daniel, about the advantages at 25 and 50 metres, from my point of view anyway, because in a bike race, there's always going to be motorbikes in that sort of um, range, mm. whether you're in the peloton or whether you're in the breakaway, you know, simply because we need camera images, don't we, of everything. Whether they're mm. closer or not is something that maybe needs to be looked at because you could have one, you know, that is at five, ten metres and you could be either back in the peloton or in the breakaway and there could be a completely different distance. And I can understand then why people will complain. But I think, um, Lionel, you know this as well, with all the bike racing you've watched that... <laughs> How do you? How on earth do you police it? How on earth do you do anything about it? 
Well, there are regulations about the number of motorbikes and what they're allowed to do. There's a regulator that is giving permission for the bikes to be where they are. Uh, you know, the different bikes have different roles. Uh, obviously, the, the TV camera motorbike wants to be as close to the action as possible to get the most dynamic pictures as possible. Then there's all of the stills photographers who are rotating round uh, to, to try and get pictures of the action they're taking turns effectively then there's bikes that are there necessary for the race either um you know patrolling the roads making sure junctions are closed and just you know they they might close a junction up ahead wait for the bunch and the brake to go past and then they have to go back past the bunch again you know there's a heck of a lot of movement i think what irks the riders and us as uh, spectators watching is when there's a sense that there's a kind of a a motorized swarm of bikes in front of either the brake or the bunch and they're impeding or influencing the racing and we've seen over the years races have undoubtedly been influenced by the motorbikes i mean i remember the 2005 gent wevergen where juan antonio fletcher was away in the final kilometer or so and looked set to win but then nico matan came streaking past and it was clear that he had take you know not deliberately because he was cleared and he did win the race uh, but there was a motorbike which was far too close and was effectively motor pacing him back up to Fletcher in the finale and you know when there have been extreme egregious examples and with the you know the the more kind of global and and brighter spotlight on the races you know I remember that being one of the first ones that that really created a bit of a storm and the kind of the the, the gnarly Belgians were like, well, pff, that's bike racing, huh? You know, because it, it has been a part of it. I mean, we've all seen clips of Milan San Remo where, you know, the bunch comes across the line and the motorbikes are so close that effectively they're, they're, they're basically part of the peloton. On the Poggio, staggering. Um, I'm only being semi-facetious when I say that I quite like it. I quite like this element. There's an element of, of skullduggery. There's an element of... <laughs> kind of cloak and dagger about it you know whether certain tv motorbike operators are favoring a certain rider or certain like you said rob um you know the idea that in certain countries the motorbikes might favor certain riders i mean that's all fun part of the fun of the fair in professional cycling i mean there are there are less and less of those elements of as i said skullduggery which is a good thing i'm not advocating <laughs> i'm not suggesting we, we we return to the dark days of the 90s um and and some of the forms of skullduggery we saw daniel there. However, this is a shorthand way of you saying that what you really want is a return to the 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 amsterdam motor paced race or the bordeaux paris where half the race was motor paced that's what you really want you want a motor paced classic on the other hand, I can also sympathise with riders who feel that they are on the wrong end of this equation. But it's a very difficult thing to completely sanitise because, you know, I mentioned there the the effect on drag, even of motorbikes. You could, you might think, oh, well, the motorbikes they don't need to be in front of the riders. They can be side on. They can be um, filming them from side on. But that has a big effect on, as we heard there, on drag as well. And there is no really easy answer, um, except maybe some people will advocate drones, for example. Um, we had an example at the weekend at Gran Camino, um, drones used for the time trial, some pretty, well, eye-catching pictures of Jonas Vingegaard in the time trial. But even there, I've seen complaints this morning that 
the drones might have been flying dangerously close to Jonas Vingegaard, so that's not without its issues either. No, it's certainly not. And anybody who knows anything about the logistics of, certainly from our point of view, from filming and producing um, for television knows that bike racing isn't football, isn't rugby, it's not stadium-based. It's, one, a very expensive job. Two, an extremely difficult logistical thing to plan. If anybody's not been able to watch the brilliant Tour of Flanders documentaries in the last few years, um, there's one or two, I think we did about five, but there's one or two in particular that focus on the planning of the television, the aeroplane that has to go up. You can see, you know, directors and people panicking, trying to make sure it's all right. It's a really difficult job. And I know they try their best not to influence. As you said, Daniel, there'll be some who'd think that, you know, there's the odd plan from somebody who might be waving a flag somewhere and, you know, or have interests. That's always going to happen. I mean, that happens in football, even with VAR. And, you know, you might be a fan of a team who plays away in a big stadium where there's 80,000, 90,000 fans screaming for a penalty. And they, you might think that that little bit of influence of those screaming for a penalty might give you a penalty. You know, the Homer referees that they used to talk about. Um, it's impossible to sanitise everything, isn't it? And I don't think that we want anything completely sanitised because like you say, you, you want something to talk about, don't you? But when it is obvious, that's the sort of, uh, I think that's the sort of thing that we want to get rid of if we can. You know, you've got a fleet of motorbikes <laughs> in front of somebody who is never going to win a race and then gets pulled back to a peloton and wins a race. That's the sort of thing you don't want, isn't it? But in terms of the chase on Sunday, I mean, they did need a motorbike or two to try and make some inroads into that gap because, well, it seemed to me that I think there were 32 riders in that second group. Christophe Laporte was in there. He had two Jumbo Visma teammates, but uh, I mean, they had absolutely no incentive to chase at all. So that's automatically quite a lot of firepower ruled out. Um, Lotto Destiny, Arno de Lee had had a more difficult day, perhaps on Sunday than than he did on on Saturday. He was uh, off the back on one of the climbs at one point. Uh, Sudal Quickstep, obviously the the hot favourite, Fabio Jakobsen, a couple of teammates in there, but there was nothing really uh, until Kofidis came to the front and lent quite a significant um, hand. It was really one against five, wasn't it, for too long, and it, you know, or two against five, and those numbers just don't. Uh, you know, although there's more riders in the chase group, unless more riders are contributing to the chase and, and keeping that pace as high as they possibly can, a fully committed break, which they were, it always was going to have the upper hand. And they even had time for a little bit of playing about, didn't they, on the, the approach to that crucial corner. And then when Benut hit them, it was game over. There was the unfortunate situation, I think, for some sprinters. Jordi Meus was all alone for Bora Hansgrohe. didn't have anybody to work for him. Caden Groves, I on one of his first races for Alpacine de Koenig, did brilliantly well to get into that final group as well on his own. I mean, Alpacine de Koenig do have a sort of legitimate region for not being in the front, given the fact that Jasper Phillips had crashed early on and he had several riders waiting for him. Um, Garcia Cortina was on his own as well. So that was three sprinters in there, riders who could have eventually won the race, who didn't have anybody to do the chasing for them. But Stoven had at least two or three teammates, you saw that Arnold Dali put, I think it was Brenton Moore who did a brilliant job for such a long time on his own. They did what they could. Sudal Quickstep didn't have a good weekend, did they? But, you know, they were there. They were trying. They had Seneschal and Ballerini doing all their best for, for Jakobsen. But you, you really have to look at Kofidis and Trexegafredo in that group, I think, and wonder why on earth they didn't start to work a little earlier. 
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Released a video on social media from his training camp in Tenerife saying that he is not going to be on the start line at Strada Bianca at the weekend. He's been feeling unwell during the training camp, lost a few days of training, and instead of rushing into action, he's going to stay at altitude a little bit longer and complete his preparations for Tirreno Adriatico, which will be his big build-up race for Milan San Remo, the first monument of the season. It means we'll have to wait a little bit longer to see Van Aert and Matthew van der Poel resume their rivalry on the road, but if the schedule stay the same we will see them go head to head at Tirreno Adriatico then at Milan San Remo and then we think at the Grand Prix E3 and the Tour of Flanders and then Paris-Roubaix but there are some other riders to look out for as well I think plenty of other riders aren't there um, and if you look at the development of this race through the years when it started in 2007 and, and the caliber of winners increased and increased and increased and the caliber of the podium as well last year Pogaccio, Valverde, Ascreme before you had Bernal, Alaphilippe the winner from the pool you talked about Fanart beating the likes of Schachmann before that you don't get average bike riders Daniel on the podium on this race anymore no it's a, do you know what chaps a lot of people talk about this phenomenon just generally but Covid has really messed with my sort of internal calendar vis-a-vis this race more than any other race I still think that in my mind Tadej Pogacar won the Covid post-Covid edition but it was actually it was last year's edition that he won a full two years after that um, in effect um, but as you say Rob uh, well, very high quality roll of honor, high quality podium finishes. Still a race, to be honest, chaps. I struggle to read, I struggle to pigeonhole, I struggle to, you know, we mentioned that Asgreen finishing third last year. Now, he's not the, the build, not the physiology of rider that I would expect to thrive in a race that's, I think, it's 3,500 meters of climbing, um, more or less. The gravel element to it. Again, it's something that we don't, I don't think we fully necessarily grasp how important that is and how specialised riders have to be to thrive on the gravel. Um, and, and also, obviously, equipment plays a role in that. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago from Astana. I think Astana are uh, one of the teams, the only teams that, well, they have quite short, I'm sorry, they have quite thin wheels and they can't really mount um tires or 30 millimeter tires which are which are pretty much de rigueur now certainly for a race like Strade Bianca. i mean 30 millimeters is, is huge compared to what um we used the tires that were used 15 20 years ago so that can play a role as well although again we're not necessarily au fait with absolutely everything the ride is going to be used at the, using at the weekend and then as well as the sort of Galacticos, we've got other riders, sort of dark horses, that I think definitely merit some discussion, some attention. Tim Vellens is a guy who has always done really well in this race without winning it. He's got one third place, but he's had an eighth, a 13th, a 10th. I think that 13th place was his worst ever ride at Strade Bianca. And he is a guy who is in superlative form at the moment. We've seen that um, over the last few weeks. Attilo Valta. 
Um, the Hungarian champion who was just signed for Jumbo, just signed for Jumbo Visma. He was outstanding in Galicia at the weekend, positioning Jonas Vingegaard before those climbs, and um, he starred in Strade Bianche last year. So he's someone to look out for. Yeah, another couple of names to throw in, fairly obvious ones, but Tom Pidcock for Ineos Grenadiers and Julian Alaphilippe back to winning ways at the weekend in France. Feels a little bit like he's been on Patrick. Lefebvre's naughty step over the winter you know Lefebvre in the Belgian press sort of throwing a bit of shade on Alaphilippe you know it was a disappointing season by Alaphilippe's standards last year obviously a very expensive asset for Sudal Quickstep and that struck me as a bit of the sort of you know the, the manager's rocket up the the backside of uh, Julian Alaphilippe over the winter just to try and uh, spur him back to his previous heights clearly in decent form it remains to be seen whether um, he's good enough to go toe-to-toe with the the likes of Van Aert and Van Der Poel who we assume will be in very good form but Daniel you you mentioned that Strada Bianca really has kind of messed up the very early classics season for me when you mention about covid it, it i can never forget the fact that um it was the first big cancellation wasn't it as uh, um the the covid pandemic spread across italy in uh, well late february early march 2020 and of course the race was moved to the height of the summer that year um Last year, I was actually there. It was my first chance to to see uh, the you know the consistency of the the gravel. I, f- I felt like I don't know um, you know a, a, a chef at market you know weighing up the produce just uh, you know just uh, letting the gravel run through my fingers just to see the consistency of it. Um, as people will say, it's very particular to that part of Tuscany. Not like the not like your common or garden British driveway gravel, is it? Um, but uh, it's the undoubtedly it's kind of has started to overshadow Het Newsblad. I think you know th- there's a fair bit more anticipation about Saturday's race simply because Van Aert Van der Poel are going to go head to head. We hope, and I think that has taken a little bit of the um, the gloss off opening weekend. It's no longer quite the the big hard hitting classic. Het Newsblad that it once was where you would see all of the classics riders a very rarely would would a rider skip Het Newsblad um, but no this weekend uh, plenty to look forward to well Lionel you next week in the podcast will be flying solo or without me anyway because I'll be at Paris Nice I'll be starting my season certainly in terms of on the on the ground um, boots on the ground coverage at Paris Nice next week. And that should be a bit of a clash of the Titans, a bit of a bit of a sort out between Jonas Vingegaard and Tade Pogacar. Should be really interesting, particularly if we get the sort of traditional first three days of filthy Paris Nice weather. Um, but yeah, you'll be back with well uh, assorted others next week. Lionel. I mean, like Jumbo Visma, we've got such an embarrassment of riches to choose from. I'll uh, I'll sit down with the director of podcasting. Coming upgrades next week. <laughs> sit down with the director of podcasting and come up with a lineup for next week. Yeah, again, another thing that's kind of messed with the way this part of the season leads up to Milan San Remo is the sort of subtle date change for Tirreno Adriatico and how that has impacted Paris Nice in the sort of head-to-head battle between that and uh, Tirreno Adriatico. Definitely, well, it's winning so far, isn't it? With having the the past two Tour de France champions, uh, so lots to look forward to 
at Paris Nice and we will well we'll look back on Strada Bianca next week we'll probably catch up with Francois Tomazo who will fill us in on the opening couple of days of Paris Nice Daniel you'll have your hands full as television's Daniel Freeb you'll you'll put your TV cloak on uh, Rob you're commentating at the weekend I'm sure we'll have you back on uh, fairly shortly but uh, just before we go if you sign up for the 1101 Cappuccino on Substack, I'll put a little link in there to my episode that I made this time last year on the ground at Strada Bianca. It's kind of a, a mini travel log, uh, not just a kind of race report. So it, uh, it sort of stands up as if you want to get a little flavour of what Strada Bianca is actually like. It was called a postcard from Tuscany, I think. And that is about all from us for this week. Thank you, Rob. Thank you very much with your best Graham Kelly. That concludes the draw impression looking at <laughs> Daniel Freeman. And thank you, Lionel. Thank you, Daniel. Enjoy the race to the sun. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Byrne. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.